He is more than a story. He is more than a comic book superhero. He is more than a symbol of hope. He represents our greatest aspirations. He is everything we think we can be. And yet, even with all the strength and all the power in all of the world, he may not be able to meet his greatest challenges and redeem his family's legacy. For he is the son of El. Chapter 4 The City of Tomorrow Nothing Clark had ever seen could prepare him for the spectacle of Metropolis. The city was hailed as a modern miracle. A world-class railway system, along with a fleet of self-driving taxis, ensured that no one in Metropolis would ever lack in transportation, and no one would ever need to own their own car. Most especially, no one had to look for a parking spot. The taxi system integrated with a network of delivery drones, shuttling orders throughout the city. Going out at all was said to be entirely optional. For those who did want to go out, Metropolis was like an amusement park, complete with rides, games, restaurants, and souvenir shops. On top of all of this, automated cleaning units perpetually washed away the grime of day-to-day -day life. The buildings, the railways, the trains, and even the sidewalks were all so clean they looked as though they were new and discreetly on everything was the LexCorp name and logo, reminding everyone who to thank for it all. LexCorp had essentially made Metropolis all it had become. Plaques around the city were eager to explain this. Commemorative fountains celebrated the prodigious young mind of Lex Luthor. After his parents famously died in a car wreck, he redirected his family's wealth away from Luthor Technologies, one of the world's leading weapons manufacturers, and instead put it toward bettering life for humanity by founding LexCorp and transforming the city of Metropolis. When Clark found the apartment building in which he was leasing his loft, his sense of awe for Metropolis was a bit diminished. The contrasting condition between the exterior and interior of the building left much to be desired. The smells and stains of his single room were a challenge like nothing his super senses had yet faced. In the short time it took to hang up what few clothes he had, Clark decided he'd prefer to be there as little as possible. Once out of his apartment and back on the street, it was easy to enjoy living in the city of tomorrow. Clark took a day to tour Metropolis before starting his new job. He thought he had to see the most popular tourist attractions and check them off his list if he wanted to learn how to be a real metropolitan. It was truly a city like no other. Any desire could be fulfilled in a moment by a passing delivery drone. Ordering a drink or meal would have it brought to you anywhere. It was as though the whole city had concierge services. Clark wasn't sure if it truly felt like being at an amusement park, having never been to one, but it certainly seemed to cost as much. The next day, Clark still hadn't decided if he had been amused or not, though he soon learned that talking about being a tourist on the first day of work does not go over especially well among the pool of interns at the Daily Planet. Lois Lane, in particular, leaned in hard at mocking him. Okay, farm boy, we get it. The county fair just doesn't compare. Oh, I've never been to the county fair. It's on the far other side of the county. And yet you landed mild position. Unbelievable. Lois was no longer an intern. Recently promoted to a staff position, 
She was shocked to learn her slot had been given to some high school graduate with no college experience. She was a spunky, dark-haired woman who had worked hard to get where she was at. Clark was unsure of how to read her subtle insults when paired with her charming smile. Another intern, a bright red-haired photographer named Jimmy Olson, took Clark aside and assured him not to mind Lois. Clark had his doubts. Are you sure she doesn't hate me? Hate you? Nah, I'm almost sure she doesn't hate you. She probably likes you, but can't stand your accent. My accent? Yeah, your accent. Just take some time to listen to yourself. It's not too late to change it. I ditched my accent when I moved to Metropolis too. Clark took a moment to appreciate how intentional Jimmy's presentation was. He boldly wore a bow tie and tweed jacket every day. I didn't realize it was something I had to ditch. Well, I'm sure you'll figure it out in a jiffy. Jimmy wasn't wrong. Compared to everything else Clark had to figure out, adapting the manner of his speech was the easiest of them. Learning the ins and outs of a newsroom, commuting in the city, and keeping up with Lois's sarcasm proved more difficult to overcome. But with a little time, Clark soon became the most proficient intern at the Daily Planet, and Lois's wry humor was growing on him. His commute was growing as well. Instead of taking the train home, Clark used the evenings to walk the streets of Metropolis. He never headed directly back to his apartment. By wandering almost aimlessly, Clark found it was inevitable that his assistance would eventually be needed. Whenever he heard a cry for help, he would leap clear over the skyscrapers in a single bound, landing radiantly at the scene with his cape blowing. Should Clark find a mugging underway, it usually ended with the mugger stammering to their knees in shock and awe. Nearly all of these criminals would drop whatever they'd stolen. Some would run away. Those on their knees would beg for forgiveness, and gently, Clark would bring them back to their feet, look them in the eye, and encourage them to believe they could do better. For those that ran away, they were always dumbfounded to discover this radiant being who'd come down from the sky was always still ahead of them, no matter which direction they ran. Clark wasn't trying to punish anyone. He would only confront them, always asking them to reassess their lives. His radiant appearance and ever-present wind had an effect that was deeper felt than Clark ever knew. Former criminals would seek redemption, and even the victims of the crimes Clark thwarted would find their lives redirected. After meeting this magnificent being, people often reprioritize their lives towards some kind of charity or other need to do better. Clark rarely caught word of any of these stories. All he heard of them were the short blurbs from the newspaper articles willing to cover his appearances. The Daily Planet never did. His heroics were only in tabloid papers, and as Martha expected, they always referred to him as an angel. Lois in particular would make fun of Jimmy whenever he brought up this new urban legend of the Angel of Metropolis. Clark knew better than to mention anything about it when they got together. The three of them managed to get lunch as a group at a nearby diner several times a week. There, Lois would usually regale them with the importance of her reporting on global politics, while Jimmy showed them his favorite photos he had taken that week. One afternoon, Jimmy was unusually excited about a photo he had not taken, published in the Gotham Gazette. Look here, can you believe it? He showed them a dark photo. What are we supposed to be seeing? This is the first ever picture of the Batman. The what man? Lois rolled her eyes. Oh, come on, Clark. Surely you've heard of the Batman in Gotham? Jimmy was eager to elaborate. Aw, oh, man, Clark. It's this crazy dude dressed up like a bat creature. Or at least, I think it's a dude. But no one knows. It might be some sort of bat creature. It's crazy. It just attacks criminals and vanishes. But someone got a photo. 
The image was uncanny, like some sort of horned winged creature blending in with the shadows. Clark hadn't considered others doing as he had done. Donning a cape to stop criminals hadn't been his intent. It just came along with wanting to help people. But why did this Batman choose to dress like a monster? Or were they actually a monster and not wearing a costume? Were they trying to scare criminals out of committing crimes? While Clark had lived with the homeless, he had gained some insight. He knew all too often, petty criminals were victims themselves. Usually, they were just another victim of an unfair system. The more Clark considered it, the more complex he came to see society's problems. The task Jarrell set for him seemed like a madman's errand from Clark's perspective, and this Batman's method seemed just as misguided, if not more so. The real crime in Metropolis was hidden in a tangle of bureaucracy. Clark often suspected that if he truly wanted to change people's lives for the best, it would be through journalism. That was where he put his efforts. Through talking to his neighbors, Clark learned that his apartment was hardly the worst in the building. Not only was his entire apartment complex not up to code, but it was a part of a chain of apartments being used in a massive money laundering scheme. In an article exposing their shady practices, Clark received his first published byline in the Daily Planet. Nearly a year after he had first started his internship, he was hired on as staff, though his duties didn't change all too much. It was the same logistical tedium as being an intern, only he was paid a little better. When he came home for the holidays, Jonathan and Martha prepared a series of feats like they never had before. They were proud of their son and celebrated his smallest victories. While he visited, the Kents were eager to share the scrapbook they had made, collecting clippings of all his appearances in the tabloid newspapers. They were clearly his biggest fans. Martha had drawn sketches of several ideas she had for his costume. They were a bit unusual. She envisioned the blue from his robes as a light blue bodysuit, updated his red boots and cape to look more modern, and added a matching pair of red shorts on top of the blue. The emblem on his chest she kept as it was, though she made it look a bit more like the letter S. What do you think, Clark? Uh, why the red shorts? Well, I was looking at suits of strongmen, like in the circus, and it really ties it all together. Don't you think so? Yeah, I do. I love it. Thanks, Ma. Clark truly did love her ideas. He appreciated Martha's creativity. After she and Jonathan had gone to bed, Clark walked across the field and knocked on the Lang family's front door. He was completely taken by surprise when a young man he didn't recognize answered it. The man introduced himself as Ted, Lana's boyfriend. Clark stammered through introducing himself and asked about Lana just before she came to the door herself. After Ted went back inside, she apologized to Clark that she didn't have long to talk. It's been so long, Clark. Did you get my letters? Letters? Oh no, I totally forgot to send you my address in Metropolis. Here, just give it to me now. I should probably be getting back inside. He jotted down his address for her. Lana was astonished to see him writing in person. Wow, Clark, look at you. That is amazing. Oh, uh, thanks. As he handed her the slip of paper, they shared an awkward silence. Clark wanted to hold her, embrace her, yet she had no idea he had become capable of such affection. Before he could figure out how to tell her, Ted came back asking about frosting the Christmas cookies. Clark wasn't able to see Lana again that trip. He had a train to catch the next morning. As he rode back to Metropolis, Clark read Lana's letters. In the first of them, she congratulated him on his new job and told him she had met a boy. In the second letter, 
She told him that she was moving in with Ted and that he would be coming home with her for the holiday break. Clark wished he had gotten the letters sooner. It would have been easier. There were some injuries his strength couldn't protect him from. When he got back to Metropolis, Clark committed himself to his work. The more he learned about the Batman, the more respect he had for him. Though Clark did not approve of his scare tactics, he could not deny Batman's impressive work ethic. Every week, there seemed to be news on the fall of Gotham's most notorious crime families. Clark told himself he would do the same for Metropolis. Gotham was world famous for its corruption and grime, but Clark knew the shine of Metropolis was only surface deep, just like his apartment building. His article on the apartments had exposed a network of corruption, leading to new management, renovations, and better living standards for himself and all of his neighbors. Clark wanted to do the same for the rest of the city, and was ready to admit it wouldn't be done by journalism alone. He made his studio apartment into a crime-fighting headquarters, with a police scanner and a corkboard of clues. He began patrolling the streets, both at day and night, bounding across the rooftops of the Art Deco buildings, hunting for trouble instead of just stumbling upon it. Soon he was stopping robberies of small businesses, rescuing people from burning buildings, and breaking up a small arms deal, though that encounter was mostly a matter of chance. In all of these appearances he made, he transformed himself so that he wore the outfit made in the image of the one Martha had designed for him. These heroic deeds were rewarding in a sense, but Clark was unsure he was doing it right. This couldn't possibly be how Batman dealt with crime in Gotham. Still, Clark's increased efforts brought him more attention. Eventually, even the Daily Planet had to cover the mysterious hero of Metropolis. Lois was put off by it at lunch one day, complaining that their editor, Perry White, had assigned her to the story. It's absolutely demeaning is what it is. This isn't real news. It's some kind of magic act, and Perry's only pawning it off on me because he doesn't take me seriously. Well, I'm not having it. He can go find some other chump. Usually, Clark tried not to offer any opinion on his own anonymous heroics. But Jimmy wasn't with them that day. His recent promotion had him so busy he could rarely meet them for lunch. Considering it rude to say nothing at all, Clark tried his best to be encouraging. Well, Lois, maybe a big story like this could use your talent. You could probably write it better than anyone. Lois scowled. Don't patronize me, farm boy. The next day, Clark learned that Lois had managed to pawn the story onto him. Oh, Clark, I hear you get to write the Angel article. I'm sure you're the perfect writing prodigy to capture its biblical proportions. Lois was still a little salty that Clark had been promoted so quickly at such a young age. He tried to retort with a snappy comeback, but it was so awkward that it only set up Lois for another zinger at his expense. Clark was just as bothered to receive his assignment as Lois, but it was for entirely different reasons. Beyond wanting to continue his investigative journalism, he didn't think it was right that he report on himself, and didn't want it to become a regular thing. With that in mind, he did his best to write a story weak enough that he wouldn't be asked to write a follow-up, but hopefully not so bad as to ruin his career. He chose to write it as a first-person adventure, told from the perspective of the bank robbers during a high-speed chase. He figured this way, he could shift the attention of the narrative off of himself, and perhaps it might be too juvenile to print. But to Clark's total shock, the story was on the front page of the Daily Planet. Lois did all she could to hide her indignation. Her writing had yet to appear on the front page of the paper. To conceal her dismay, she read Clark's entire article to him and Jimmy at lunch that day, using a sing-songy voice to emphasize how bad it was. 
This was a new level of embarrassment for Clark, rivaling his school days. Lois had an inexplicable effect on him, even in front of an audience of one. Clark blushed as Jimmy teared with laughter at Lois's reading. It didn't end there. To Clark's dismay, Perry wanted more articles from him in the same style. All these other papers are trying to move on this story and you're giving readers a fresh perspective they're hungry for. Get us more of that, Kent. Clark wrote two more articles this way, each of them with more dramatic license than the last. He completely agreed with Lois's critique. They were more appropriate for crime novels than newspaper articles, but they kept being printed on the front page. The worst part for Clark was knowing these articles were being clipped out and saved by Jonathan and Martha, and would likely take the most prominent spot in their memorabilia, being both written by and about himself. He had been assigned to write another of these stories when Lois told him that it didn't matter if he wrote it or not. She was going to be on the front page tomorrow. Really? What are you writing? Oh, I'm only on my way to the largest trade agreement of the decade. No big deal. So, you know, there won't really be any room for your little action-adventure story on tomorrow's cover. Clark certainly hoped so. He didn't think he could make his writing any worse than it had already been, though he did sit down that day and try. When he finally finished his article, he considered it completely unworthy of publication. As Clark was about to submit it and leave the Daily Planet for the day, Perry White stormed out of his office bellowing an announcement. We've got terrorists at the Trade Center, people! They've got the press corps as hostages! That's two of ours out there! Let's see some hustle, people! Hustle! For a moment, the office stood shocked. This was Jimmy and Lois he was referring to. All at once, everyone reacted, scrambling in every direction. In the commotion, Clark headed directly to the stairwell and up to the roof of the building. He scanned the horizon toward the Trade Center, but it was barely visible. Just a little beyond the curvature of the Earth, he could see it. Focusing on his destination and the imperative at hand, he took on his radiant form in a flash of light. He didn't want to imagine a world without Lois's sarcastic humor. He leapt forward, off of the building, fists outstretched in front of him. Hurling like a bullet through the air, Clark shot across Metropolis all the way to the Trade Center. There, he stopped, hovering suspended in front of the elaborate Art Deco building. He needed a moment to think. He did not want to hurt anyone, especially by accident. Focusing his vision on the solid walls before him, he managed to vaguely make out the forms of the terrorists and hostages inside a great banquet hall. Swiftly, he broke in through the window. Stopping midway into the room, he stood, aglow with his hands on his hips and his cape billowing in the wind. The terrorists were taken back for the slightest moment before taking aim on this majestic, unworldly being. Yet that moment was all he needed. As time had slowed down for him, he assessed the room. And just as the first bullets could be fired, he rushed about, disarming and destroying every weapon in the room. All of the terrorists and the many hostages who had still been standing were overtaken by a need to drop to their knees. Jimmy Olsen had kept his wits and got Pulitzer Prize-winning photos that day. Lois managed to gather herself and break the odd silence, asking in her professional journalistic fashion, Who are you? And can we get a statement? Clark thought for a brief moment before answering, I'm a friend. I'm here to help." He bashfully gave Lois a smile and her knees nearly gave way underneath her. The moment was broken by police rushing into the room. Well, it looks like I'm no longer needed here. I'll be on my way. In one graceful movement, he swept around and left the way he had come in. Clark was relieved to get out. He had never spoken in front of such a large group of people before. He hoped none of them noticed how nervous he was. 
Lost in his worries and idly daydreaming about his victory, Clark was halfway across Metropolis before he realized he had been flying this whole time. With this awareness, he pumped one of his fists above his head in celebration, rocketing upward. High above the clouds, Clark played in the sky well into the night. It felt good to save the people he cared about. Clark was soaring, in more ways than one. Thank you for listening. I'm Isaac Bluefoot. Son of L is written and produced by myself. I appreciate you listening and sticking around for the credits. So many creators have been a part of telling the story. This story was inspired by the Superman and DC Comics and characters originally created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, with additional contributions by Bill Finger, Bob Kane, and John Sakella. Manuscript editing assistance by Trisha Reel. Music in this episode was made by Beauchamp, Poddington Bear, Blue Dot Sessions, Happiness in Airplanes, Vortex, Graffiti Mechanism, Spectacular Sound Productions, Sack Syndrome, and Johnny Ripper. See the episode notes for details. For more of my work, get yourself a deck of Omen Quest cards at omenquestcards.com. Unique games and a beautiful deck of cards. And be sure to listen to the next episode, Chapter 5, The Daily Planet. <laughs>